This is Quorum with Quorum's Quorum. My guest today is Alumdar Hamdani, the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Texas. What I love about this story is that it's the classic American story of how the son of poor immigrants in small town Texas became the U.S. Attorney for one of the most important jurisdictions in the country. But I discovered another equally American part of the story that I hadn't heard elsewhere, the story of the entrepreneurial civil service that led him to where he is today. So without further ado, here's Alumdar. Alumdar, it's great to connect with you. Thanks for taking the time to talk today. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you for having me. So uh, I read an article about you uh, from 2006. So there's some pretty, some gems in there. And mm-hmm. something I found out about you that you and I have in common is we both done some door-to-door sales work. So you sold newspapers <laughs> when you were a teenager. Yeah. And uh, not much taller than you. I was, uh, I worked on a political campaign where I was knocking door to door canvassing. So uh, fairly similar experience, but yeah, I'd love to hear about that experience for you, what that was like, and you know, what's the legacy of that? Looking back now, what are the skills or perspectives that you have today that you you gained knocking on those doors? Yeah, you know, uh, so I was uh, 13 or 14, just a new immigrant a couple of years before. Uh, so my dad was a cab driver. My mom worked minimum wage job. I grew up in a small two-bedroom apartment in Euless, Texas with my little sister. So I felt like I need to go get a job and go do something. And so I sold newspapers, the Dallas Morning News, door to door. Um, and it was it was actually, you know, it was actually quite a when I think back on it, it was it was kind of sketchy and dangerous. You know, they'd uh they they pile a bunch of us who weren't old enough to get a real job into the back of a van. First of all, a bunch of kids being piled into the back of a van. Enough and said. then we'd be driven we'd be driven to some sketchy neighborhood in Dallas. Um, and we'd go door to door, apartment complexes, houses. And we, you know, we give some pitch about buy the newspaper so I can win a trip to D.C. And, you know, the legacy of that is if you, you know, learning how to go and talk to strangers at a door is a pretty scary thing to do. And um, and, and, and being able to capture somebody's attention for even five seconds before they shut your door was kind of a win. And, uh, you know, so I, I learned a lot about everything from just human dynamics to the cadence of my voice and how fast I spoke and how I said things. And of course, now um, as a lawyer, all of those things come into play, uh, both from the human nature standpoint, as well as the the technicalities of, again, you know, the timber or, or cadence of your voice. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and, and very similar for me, just that experience of that fearlessness you get from knocking on doors. Yeah. And you know, mine was in a political context. So you can imagine how he did. You know, people were getting that's even like, more. Yeah, that's yeah. even more like people are gonna shut shut the door and, and kick it on the way in, you know. So that's that's tough. Yeah. So yeah, so it, but but you you you're right, it just it does uh it thicken your skin, you learn to connect with people, uh you learn to size people up pretty fast. And I, I think those are valuable skills. Can you say some more about uh just because I, I think Ulysses is a small town in, in northern Texas, right? Yeah, yeah. And, uh you know, so that's gotta be an unusual experience for an immigrant, a unusual place to grow up as an immigrant. So can you say some more about that experience? Yeah. So, you know, uh, Ulysses is in between Dallas and Fort Worth. It's part of what you call the mid-cities. Um, it's not that small of a town, but it's a small city. And 
we we moved there because we originally moved to Fort Worth, Texas, which is a big city. Live with my uncle. That did not work out well for both my uncle's family and my family. So we we left and we we were living in a small two bedroom apartment. Um, you know, my dad was a cab driver in England. Uh, we came here in search of the American dream, and my dad drove cabs and worked at a Seven Eleven, uh, a convenience store. My mom worked for the everything from waitressing to finally getting a job with the airlines, but nothing beyond minimum wage. So the experience of of, of living in Euless for me was one about just watching my parents survive um, in this in this space. Uh, next door to us, there was a family of eight from Tonga. Um, and so you had this very multicultural kind of thing. But then if you go to my high school, I think I was one of two or three brown people in the entire high school. And the high school was big. The graduating class was 620 people. And so growing up, you know, I got my fair share of uh, words describing brown people. Uh, you know, you've probably heard them all. And uh, and that's why I first heard. Them. And at the time when I was growing up, I grew up Muslim. So I was also Muslim at the time. So that was a, a rarity for them to see as well. So a brown person, Muslim. Uh, I had an English accent, which didn't help the situation any. Um, you know, so add to all of that, all these all these things. Um, and uh, but that being said, one of the great things I think about people who grow up uh, with meager means is I had really good parents and I never knew how poor I really was. And I think there was something good about that. And maybe because I, I also understood they were poor. I didn't ask for a lot, uh, but I always had what I needed in, in high school. I always had uh, what I needed throughout the day. I never wanted for a meal, uh, which I think is not always the case with folks who live below the poverty line. Um, but it's where I learned about America was in Euless, Texas. Uh, it's where I learned, you know, where I became a Dallas Cowboys fan. Uh, to this day, I think, you know, it's the greatest football team they've ever lived. Um, and well, yeah, that's, uh, that's so interesting because I have to pick up on that because I, I was born in Houston. I lived there for the first 10 years. And, uh, you know, it it made a mark on me. You know, my parents told me when I moved to New Jersey, I, I just would keep on bragging about Texas and how amazing it is and how I was going to go back. And that was my, that was my whole thing. And I think there is something about Texas specifically that really does, you can use the word indoctrinate. I mean, Texas has mythology, right? I mean, Pecos Bill and all these kinds of characters, like there wasn't any mythology in New Jersey. There was the New Jersey devil and that's it, but there wasn't like yeah. stories or tall tales or that kind of stuff. Yeah. So there's like a mythology about Texas and uh, it stays with you. So I, I still feel very connected to Texas in that way. And that is something that I wonder about you is, you know, despite feeling so different, you know, early on and, and, and not necessarily intentional children don't necessarily know what they're doing. They're just echoing things they've heard, but you know, what would you say is the most Texan thing about you? <laughs> I'd say the most Texan thing about me is I say y'all, uh, that is a Texan thing to do. It is, uh, it's never the Southern thing. Cause I was in Kentucky and uh, they don't say y'all as much as we do. Um, you know, it's uh, also, I think, probably the most Texan thing, and this is serious, the Texas thing I, uh, that's part of me is we're friendly people. I mean, it's, it's you know, uh, it's it's a place where you can walk down the street 
and say hello to somebody and they'll say hello back. And it's not unusual. Um, you know, uh, when I'm in a courtroom and I've got opposing counsel on either side, we're always going to be kind to each other. It's going to be, and I think there's a Southern part of it. Uh, you know, the whole, uh, the Southern hospitality part is, is alive and well, even in a big city like Houston. And I think it makes a bigger city like this a little smaller. Uh, you know, and, you know, so growing up in England, I watched the show Dallas. Uh, you might, you, I don't know if you're old enough to, to remember that show. I know that show, but, you know, um, and so when I moved to Dallas, I had that connection. America's team at the time was the Dallas Cowboys. So that was a big deal for me. That's why I probably became a Dallas Cowboys fan, because I wanted to be everything American. Um, and, but yeah, and I, I think when it comes to uh, Texas, it's it's all about just the kindness and the hospitality. So, and, and, I, I, and you don't see, like my sister lives in New York. And in fact, I think if I went around, uh, you know, uh, Queens saying hi to people, I, I'd get really funny looks. So, well, you know, skipping around, I think it was really helpful to get some of that background for you. And I hope you don't mind if we skip around a little bit. Yeah. You know, yeah. But fast forward to today, you know, it's just, there's such a fascinating contrast between how it, it sounds, what I'm hearing is you felt out of place growing up. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, how could you be any more in place? You are the man now, like you are, you know, the the prosecutor for the Southern District of Texas. So this, this is society saying you squarely belong here. So how do you make sense of these two different experiences that you've had? Well, you know, it's um, what it does is it, 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 it I, I think they're both the same in this, in that the American experience isn't a white experience. It isn't. A, a a black experience. It's the the American experience is a patchwork. Um, the American experience, unlike any other country, even England, uh, which has got multicultural parts to it, this is a multicultural society. Uh, it's one that has been built upon immigrants from all over, right? And it's a place where immigrants come from all over. So I think the fact that uh, you know, a South Asian is the uh, the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Texas is not surprising. What is surprising is that it's taken this long to get here at times. Uh, but then that's not surprising if you know the history of South Asians. So, you know, South Asians in the United States weren't here uh, by any stretch until 1965 when the immigration laws opened up. In 1965, before the immigration laws opened up, there were, I think, nine to 10,000 South Asians in the entire United States. And so anybody who's of my vintage, 51 years old, is probably going to be an immigrant. And it's going to take time for that immigrant community to get into society um, and see its children grow up and take on positions that are probably uniquely American, like being a lawyer. So it's not surprising that it's probably taken this long for a South Asian to become the U.S. attorney, just because we as South Asians haven't been in this country as long. Um, and it's not surprising, uh, considering how multicultural it is. Now, if you come to the U.S. attorney's office in the Southern District of Texas, you will see a wall of all the prior United States attorneys. And except for, except for an African-American woman, uh, they all look the same and they all don't look like me. Uh but my hope is, of course, uh, 
that as the first, I'll be the, you know, I won't be the last, and that you'll have more uh, South Asians. But uh, I think it's wholly American for somebody of a different hue to become, you know, the U.S. attorney or go up high in government. That makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. And I think this also ties into, I think part of the obstacle seems is that um, there's things, you know, we as as a South Asian community, and there's an overlap, I think, with Muslims as well. I happen to grow up Muslim as well, uh, Pakistani. And um, there's there's um, choices that we made as a community as well and, and response, responding to our circumstances. And so I think something that you saw growing up uh particularly for muslims i think is uh, a wariness of being involved at the civic level being involved in politics uh so when i worked on the political campaign i was 21 and my parents were very opposed to it they said you know don't get involved you know until then you know we got messages from my parents and not just my parents but just other people in our community saying hey you know um be skeptical of the government the government's tracking you these kinds of things and you know it it didn't sound implausible, but just sound like a bit of a stretch. And then I think some of the things we learned after 9-11 was that was validated. And so um, there's an understandable wariness that, that you know, let's say um, South Asians, Muslims, whatever you have between there uh, have had about um, being involved. But unfortunately, the only path it seems to me is through. And so I, I think you, it seems to me that you were an early mover in that direction. You're an early mover from our communities to get involved with um being involved in 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 civically minded activities uh advocacy and so i'm really curious about where that came from because i've read that you know you were impacted by 9-11 you were you're you had a uh your wife was pregnant at the time and so there's just a lot that was happening for you personally that you know you were feeling impacted um and so i'd love to hear about that and then uh some more about what are choices you made that you feel that some of your peers that come from similar parts of the world or similar influences didn't make? Because it sounds like you made some choices that were unusual. I'd like to explore that. Yeah, no. So uh, I was active politically when I was in college at University of Texas. Hmm. Uh, so when I, you know, I, I was at UT from 89 to 93. So uh, Bill Clinton got elected in 92. Uh, and so there was this, so, you know, when you're a 20 year old in college, you have this idealistic view of the world. And and I, I think for me, maybe because I grew up in England a little bit uh, and I was the first one to go to college, I didn't know what I wasn't supposed to get involved. In. Mm. So I got involved and I got involved. And, in my, you know, my mom and dad, they were too busy just trying to uh, pay the rent uh, to really counsel me and kind of what I should or should not get involved in. So a lot of my... Uh, paths in life have been ones I've just kind of gone down because I felt like it's the right way to go. I didn't know. Or maybe in the wrong way. So I was I was involved in politics in college. Um, but then I got, you're right, I stayed out of it. Um, and, you know, when I was in law school, uh, my, I went to law school at night at the University of Houston. I was working at a company and I was like, if I can maybe one day make 60 grand a year, I'd be the happiest guy in the world. And I think that maybe this law degree will get me there. And so, and then I made a law review and then I realized there were all these law firms who were paying a lot more money than that. And so I went to school full time and finished my law degree. And I 
got a job um, at a mid-sized firm, then it became a big firm. And anyway, so I did the big firm life and I was married. I was trying to make as much money as I could. And all I wanted to do was become partner at a law firm because that's what I thought was the pinnacle of, of any career in law. And then, as you said, 9-11 happened. So when 9-11 happened, I was two years out of law school and I realized, I just realized that people who look like me or shared my parents' faith um, were going to be looked at with eyes jaundiced by the deeds of Muslim terrorists. And so I said, what do I do? I got this law degree, what do I do? And um, first of all, the fact that I said that to myself, I think is kind of uh, a big part of my my life changed because I said that to myself. I said to myself, what do I do? What should I do? And I started to represent people pro bono in FBI interviews. And so FBI was interviewing people around uh, Houston and uh, is, you know, right after 9-11, um, pretty much if you were a Muslim male of a certain age, uh, you were going to be questioned by the FBI. And so I started representing people for free. I learned and, you know, I teamed up with a, a guy in the criminal defense world because all I did was commercial litigation. And I learned kind of about the practice of how to protect people's rights in those interviews. I also learned about several things. I learned how my client was extremely terrified. I learned how the agent was terrified. They didn't want another 9-11 on their hands. But I also learned about myself. And I learned that I really enjoyed doing that work. And I also enjoyed not charging for it. it sounds weird. But I felt I could be just more in the moment and more for that individual and, and be more aware of what the issues were because I wasn't getting paid. So, and and they couldn't pay anyway, but um, if I didn't charge, if I did it pro bono, I just felt there's something, it just felt a little bit more pure to me. Um, uh, right or wrong, that's how I felt. And so I did these. And so as I told people, uh, I used to say, I, I used to say, I, I did the billable work to feed my family and I did uh, the pro bono work to feed my soul. And it really did. So that's how I kind of got to know that that's that that moment that that right there changed my life. That decision to get involved and be a part of something changed my life. And you know, it would eventually lead me to joining the board of the ACLU of Texas, to doing civil rights work. Um, uh, you know, luckily the firm was letting me do both. I eventually left the firm, started my own practice, so I could do more in-depth civil rights work. I did. Uh, habeas petitions for people stuck in immigration detention. I eventually took on a couple of um, criminal defense cases on the national security side, um, and so. But it all it all started, as you as you mentioned, uh, because of that decision to get involved, um, and of course that would all eventually lead me to want to leave private practice and become a public servant. And so I'm struck with. You know, you reach out to ACLU, you reach out to the Anti-Defamation League. Yes. And, you know, did anyone model anything like, were you, when you did those things, you know, like, hey, I'm going to pick up the phone and, and call these organizations and see how I can help. Had you ever seen someone do something like that before? Like, where did you get this idea from? No, I just did no. it. Yeah. I just did it. Um, and, uh, and you know what? It probably comes from, um, so, you know, one of my other jobs I had 
uh, was selling uh, uh, AT&T and Sesame Street books over the phone. And so I remember it was just the most awful, god awful job, just awful. <laughs> you know, this is you know this is the uh, mid nineties, and you know, and it was just not not a fun time. But I'm picturing that you like pick the phone and you start talking like the voice of Cookie Monster to get <laughs> exactly. <picture>. exactly. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, if I'd done that, maybe I would have gotten more sales and I would have stuck with it. Um, but so picking up the phone and calling somebody. Uh, wasn't so scary. I'll tell you what was scary that was knocking on the door and walking in and, and seeing who you are and, and and saying, what do we, what do we talk about? But, you know, I think it's, I think what helped, you know, and I agree you talked about the Anti-Defamation League, right? Uh, a historically Jewish organization. Um, uh, but I call them, I, I, lit- I literally call them. I didn't know anything about them. But the word Anti-Defamation, I was like, I think I, I don't want to be defamed. This is exact. I think I need to call this organization, and that's why I called them. And it was great. It, was, it ended up being a wonderful uh, relationship and marriage. I learned so much about civil rights work um, and about engaging not only with the community but engaging with law enforcement, and un, you know having a mutual kind of understanding of each other. And it's really, of course, it's it's through that process where I got to know law enforcement, where I got to know not only FBI agents. Uh, or, or local police, but also got to know eventually the federal prosecutors in the Southern District of Texas, uh, and, uh, and and eventually one day, I remember I'm sitting there on the other side of the AUSA's uh, defending somebody, and I said to myself, I I really believe I want to be on the other side, and so it's uh, but yeah, uh, but it all it all starts with just picking up that phone and you know, making the call. But yeah, I, I modeled nobody except my own Sesame Street selling book days. I'm so fascinated with this point in your story because I just think it's there's so many things, so many interesting themes or dynamics that are play there. So, you know, here you are a federal prosecutor and just at a glance, you know, just if, if you know something about federal prosecutors, you have this image in your mind of this very storied arc that led them there of, of kind of like, you know, uh, this kind of clear trajectory towards the office. And I think, you know, when we think about government officials, rarely do we think of the word entrepreneurial, but I, I can't see how you could have ended up where you are today without this entrepreneurial venture that you did. And I'm also struck with the nature of the entrepreneurial venture, which was, it was very low risk in that, you know, you didn't have to quit your job to do this thing. Yes. It's something that you're doing on the side. You didn't necessarily have a destination. It's not like, great, I'll do this. And because I do this, I'll end up as the U.S. attorney, yeah. you know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, that's obviously not why you end up doing that. You clearly are doing it out of, out of some passion. Um, but how how do you also reconcile that with ambition is really interesting to discuss because, so I read this interview from 2006 and you made a comment there that uh, I'm assuming it was tongue in cheek, but probably there's some truth to it saying, oh, you know, I'm, I'm hoping my son will become president. And, you know, that, I think that speaks to an ambition that you have for yourself, for your family. And, you know, it's not an accident that you end up as U.S. attorney now. So clearly ambition was a part of it, too. But how do you reconcile ambition with doing thankless tasks? Like no one, there was no career prospects in representing, you know, the most hated group in America, the number one enemy, uh, you know, these Muslims, you know, potential terrorists uh, for free. You know, so like there's no money in that future in that. So just like, how do you reconcile ambition with doing these thankless tasks, entrepreneurship? 
You know, I think it's it's probably so when I think of ambition, I think of moving up the ladder to the next step. For me, I don't think it was uh, about ambition. It was really, I think maybe, you know, uh, maybe I just, I wanted to be a public servant, but I didn't know how to be one. Hmm. And so I did this stuff as public service. Uh, and, and, you know, it's 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 interesting. Probably one of the biggest moments in my life when I think about it is when I, decided I didn't want to be a partner at a big law firm anymore. Like I woke up in the morning, I was like, I don't think this is what I want to be at this point in my life. Um, what do I, you know, what do I do? And so, you know, when you have, when, when money isn't the most motivating factor, I think you can allow public service and its um, uh, attraction kind of creep into your life and you want to do more of it. Um, and so I think for me, what drove me, so take my son, right? So I was really cognizant of this, the example I'm setting for my child. When you, you know this, you, when you've got a five month old, right? I think you've got an older child as well. You're really cognizant about the person I am um, is going to be most likely the person my child's going to emulate to some extent. Mm-hmm. And so I want to make sure I set the best example I can for my son. And what is for me a good example? For me, a good example is public service. And so if my son sees me in pub, doing public service, then maybe my son will want to one day emulate that and give back to the community and not think, for example, money is the most important thing in the world. And I think that was, that was driving me at the time was that. And so the reason I probably, and I know the the reason I did all that pro bono and civil rights work uh, was really just out of this idea of, I think I want to be a public servant. I don't know how to be one. I, this, is the, this is the lowest threshold to public service, is to say, raise your hand and go, I'll do it, and I'll do it for free. Let's go. And um, and then, uh, and then whenever, I, whenever when I did that, I, I never thought it would be an avenue to one, one day become an assistant U.S. attorney. Um, the same thing with all the, the South Asian Bar Association work I was doing. So I was doing a lot of pro bono work. The South Asian Bar Association work, um, I will say this. I thought maybe I'd pick up some some brown clients by doing that. Um, never happened. Uh, but what I really found joy in was what was kind of uh, meeting the mentors I'd love to have and maybe one day becoming one to others. And uh, so, again, that was just me trying to, um, you know, uh, more part of this this public service idea. So eventually, um, all of that uh, would lead me to getting the AUSA position, but it was never part of the grand plan when I went into it. And so I, I don't think ambition drove me. I think one thing I've told people, I tell people now is, you got to follow your passion and follow where your heart leads you. Um, and I've done that. I've luckily done that. And I've luckily got away with it and made a living uh, while doing it. Um, so anyway, that's uh, uh, so that's kind of what led me down. That it was kind of the thirst for public service. And I think that's interesting because, you know, I think a lot of people perceive that to be a luxury is, is public to be a public servant. And so yeah. I'm reminded of there's a quote from John Adams that that I, I just looked up that you, you just reminded me of and maybe familiar with that. And 
the original is kind of long, so I'll just kind of paraphrase it, but he's saying, I must study. I think this is a note to himself or a letter to a friend. I'm not sure which, uh, I think it might be a letter to his wife. Uh, I must study politics and wars so that my sons may have liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. My sons ought to study mathematics and philosophy in order to give their children a right to study painting and poetry. Hmm. And so, you know, what's interesting is that I always perceived, um, I think so on the subject of immigration, so many people, my parents are immigrants and they were selected for their economic acumen and ability. So my father had a full scholarship to a small MBA program. He was selected for his academic aptitude and his ability to perform economically in the society, you know, to be a contributor in that way. And so then he did, he uh, came to the country and long story short, he um, wrote software for lawyers. That was the thing that he figured out to do. And, and, and then he ran with that. So that's who we brought over, right? And so that's, and then their children, of course, are going to have something in them of entrepreneurship and and uh, that that kind of economic drive. So of course, in our community, um, we see so much focus on economic performance, yeah. and that's the metric I think so many of us value ourselves. And the question, you know, it, it, when I went to college, I really really opened my eyes because I always just assumed, like, obviously, go to college to study and learn how to make money. And then I would meet all these kids from other parts of the country that weren't necessarily from wealthy families. Um, some of were, some weren't, but any number of them were like, yeah, I'm just pursuing this because I find this interesting. And I don't, I, I'm well aware there's not really any money in this path. And to me, I just, I was just, my mind was blown by that. I was like, what do you mean you're not optimizing for money or, or that kind of status? Um, and then I really realized, yeah, I mean, what it means to have truly arrived here to really fit in as American is to be able to have that freedom to just pursue what, like you say, what you value. And so I, I, I kind of wonder if how, how is it that we can get, you know, people, you know, say South Asians or other people, uh, you know, that feel this pressure to perform this one specific domain, how can you get people to see, Hey, you know, if you really want to, to fit in here and really feel like, you know, you're valued do the thing that you're like you said you use the word passion passionate about or you know that you are interested in or have aptitude for stop optimizing for this one dimension that i think is so prevalent in our small community that we all measure each other against yeah no um and so you know i was in private practice for nine years and that nine years i did both right so i thought okay this it's it's not much of a risk as you mentioned earlier because i had my had my full-time job and i was working and I was either billing hours at the firm or had my own law practice, you know, taking on a, a combination of plaintiff's work and defense work or even some contingency fee work. Um, and also doing all the uh the 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 pro bono work as well. And so the biggest I think so I think if you can do both, great. It's also a lot, like it's a lot. You know, and um, but I'll tell you when I once I became an AUSA, and the good thing about becoming an AUSA is the pay is still decent. But I really, I was I was now able to just focus. Didn't have to worry about clients or billing or a draw or a paycheck or making partner. All those all those worries went away. I also didn't have to worry about you know, uh, the pro bono work and and how is all, how's it going to fit? And all I had when I became an AUSA was I get to be a public servant. 
which is clearly what something I wanted to be, as well as get paid a halfway decent salary and just focus on putting away bad guys right? or doing justice, hopefully doing both. And it was almost freeing when that happened. Uh, and it took me a while to understand that was there and that existed. Like I didn't know what an AUSA was until I was probably a lawyer for several years. Like when you read that article in 2006, I had probably at that point may have met one or two AUSAs. That's probably the first time I met an AUSA. Um, and so, uh, but once I became one, it was really free. And now, uh, and, 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 you know, and I was doing a lot of fundraising on the politics side and doing all this other stuff. And when you become an AUSA, you can't do any of that stuff. It's nice. You just get to focus on this one thing, one job you have. And, uh, and so, um, you know, it's, it, I will say this, it is not a luxury uh, in that, you know, when I was doing it, I was doing both working and, and, and doing it. So I was doing, I was working almost sometimes, you know, burning both ends of the candle. And then when you become uh, an AUSA, you, you, you will take a, a pay cut to become one. Uh, and uh, for the most part, you probably will, especially if you came from a big firm kind of life and big firm kind of, uh, pay uh but like i said it's just it's a very simple edict you do justice it's it's that simple so um and i i do see more people going into public service over the over the past couple of decades is there anything you miss about private practice um it's really you know it's no and i'll tell you why I'll tell you why I don't miss, uh, I, just, I don't, maybe for me right now, private practice, I miss the money. That's not was nice, right? Um, I do miss that. Uh, but it's civil work uh, at times is quite uncivil. And uh, it was, in, at times I, I, I would have been part of that problem, not part of the solution. Because that's just, it's just, a, it's just the atmosphere that is. And I, and it doesn't have to be uncivil. Uh, but, and so that was the one part I, I, you know, when money gets involved, petty discovery fights get involved, people get pretty nasty. Uh, you know, your worth is measured by how many hours you bill. I don't miss that. Um, but, you know, one thing I do miss is working on some pretty complicated issues with some really talented lawyers. Um and so you don't always get that when you're doing gun and drug cases at the U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, but you do get to do that when you do, as I did for most of my career, national security, public corruption, and large white collar cases. There I get to kind of hang out uh, with uh, some of the uh, the folks I used to work with when I was in the private sector. So that that that's kind of fun. But there's not much I miss about the private sector. I really... Uh, besides the money, I really enjoy kind of – there's one thing you have as an AUSA, which I don't think you find anywhere else, and that is the prosecutorial discretion uh, that you have. Even as a young AUSA, you have so much discretion, even taking a gun case or a, uh, a drug case. You know, the moment an AUSA touches the life of another human being, that life changes. 
And so before we touch, before we reach out, you know, we've got to make sure we've used our discretion appropriately. And, you know, the trust the department gives us to do that is it's pretty astonishing if you think about it. Uh, and so, you know, it's it's that's why when I interview, I'm looking for those who I think would take that incredible power and use it judiciously and appropriately. But it's something you don't get in the private sector, like that kind of ability, uh, that discretion is, is, yeah. So there's not much I miss from the private sector. Yeah, understood. All right. So you mentioned that, uh, you know, you were some years in a practice and then you, you know, he had just got exposed to your federal prosecutors. Yeah. Tell us some more about that story, about the path from you've got your own practice to yeah. ending up as a U.S. attorney. So, uh, it, you know, it, it started with this pro bono work I'm doing. And uh, so I got to know FBI agents, but I never got to know AUSAs. But then one day, um, I, so one time I had this um, this habeas petition for this guy who was stuck in immigration detention for several years. And I took, uh, I'm taking the deposition of this guy. Of, not this guy, but I'm taking the deposition of the deportation officer. So if you can imagine, my client has been in detention for four years. And he ran out of money years before that. He's Pakistani Muslim. And I say, okay, I'm, I take the deposition of the deportation officer and I ask him a specific question based upon a Supreme Court case that had just come out. And if the uh, if the deportation officer answered in the affirmative, then under that case, my client had to be released. So I'm at the U.S. Attorney's Office. First time I've come to the U.S. Attorney's Office, this office I'm in now. And on the other side, there's a guy named Daniel Hugh. Daniel Hugh was the deputy chief over the civil section. And uh, I asked the deportation officer the, the question, and he says, yes, which means my client must be released. So I say, hey, let me stop this deposition. You got to understand, every civil interaction I've had has always been contentious. And like I said, civil as, of, as often uncivil. So I go, Daniel, can we go outside and talk? And we go outside and I go, Daniel, why is my client still in detention? You heard what, what the deportation officer said. And Daniel said, he will be released tomorrow. Boom. And so that was the first time I'd come across just, not first time, but what, what astounded me was the decency of Daniel, uh, the power he had, like mm -hmm. discretion to do that. Right. Um, and the honesty he showed. And that to me was the first moment when I was like, I like these guys. These guys are honest. They're good. They're smart. Um, and then when I took on some criminal defense matters in the national security realm, I got to know the AUSAs on the other side because I had clients that were proffering for 30, 40 sessions. These were complicated national security cases. And when I got to know the AUSAs on the other side, first of all, same thing as with Daniel, the decent, good people just trying to do the right thing. And I could see that. Uh, but then I also saw that this case I had, which was really cool and fascinating, and this client I had, which was incredibly interesting. I'm not going to get that often, but these guys get to see it every day, all the time. I was like, I think I want to be one of them. And so that's what really led me to say, you know, I think I want to become a federal prosecutor in a USA. Never thought I'd have the credentials nor the ability to become one, uh, but that's what led me down 
that path. And so that's the arc. So my the arc of my career is unlike many arcs. You know, it's it's and it's it's one that for me was surprising when it led to the U.S. Attorney's Office. It wasn't uh, one that was ever planned out. And so then what what came next? So, so you decided, yeah. okay, I want to move in that direction. Then what? Yeah. So then I applied for a job at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Houston here. Um, I had one round of interviews. I hadn't got a second round. And then I met a guy um, at a South Asian Bar Association conference in San Francisco. His name is Amol Tapar. Amol Tapar at that time was the United States Attorney for the Eastern District of Kentucky. Amol Tapar is the first South Asian uh, to become a presidentially appointed Senate-confirmed U.S. Attorney. At the time, I didn't know what that meant or the importance of that, but I knew he was the U.S. Attorney. And he also told us in this very first meeting that he had just become he had just been nominated to become the first South Asian to become an Article Three judge, which was a dream of me and my leaders in the South Asian Bar. And so it was, it was we were over the moon the fact that a brown guy was finally going to become an Article Three judge. But Amul said, "Hey man, why don't you come interview in my office in the Eastern District of Kentucky?" I said, "All right." Don't know where Kentucky is. I'll figure it out, but I will go interview. And I interviewed and I was struck by the decency of the human beings that interviewed me and the kindness of them. And I was really just like, these people are nice. And then a multipar offered me a job. And um, when you're the son of a cab driver, a bird in the hand is worth more than two in the bush and you, and you move. And so I moved my small family, uh, my my young son, my pregnant wife, I uh, quit my law practice. Uh, she quit her job. We sold a house, and we moved to Kentucky so I could become a federal prosecutor. Uh, but so that's that's how it happened. So it happened because of a whole host of reasons. The South Asian Bar. It happened because I was I was open to it uh, because of all this work I'd done, um, and then I was lucky enough to meet uh, a multipar, and he said come interview with me. And and one thing I've learned as the U.S. attorney, uh, the U.S. attorney has a big say-so in who gets to be hired, i.e. that U.S. attorney can pick who they want to hire. And so I, it's not lost on me now, especially as the U.S. attorney, how much Amul Tapar's influence was um, in me becoming a federal prosecutor. But for him, I don't think I'd be one. I don't think I don't think I don't think I was good enough to be hired in Houston, uh, and frankly, uh, I'm I'm so glad that Amul took a chance on me. So that's how I became. Can you say some more? I, I I think what's really fascinating in people's stories are the personal dimension that drives their professional choices. Yeah. So I I don't think we can talk about your story without understanding how is it that you as a family decided hey, we all are in this to take this risk because there's a risk. You know, you you yeah. have a successful private practice. In Houston, yeah. your wife was working there as well. Kids, yeah. are, you know, the balls are on for them too. That's a lot to move. And my, by the way, my family again, very similar story. My my yeah. my parents identified that they wanted to get us to a really great school district in New Jersey, so they yeah. moved when I was ten. That's why we moved from Texas to New Jersey. So my family also uprooted. And my dad was uh, had his own business and had his own clients in Houston. Had to get new clients in New Jersey, and so it was it was a huge uh, um, a, lo- a lot to give up, a lot of opportunity costs. So how did you as a family decide that that was the right move? Because there's a lot, you know, before we were talking about something that was low risk, hey, doing this work on the side, whatever. Now there's a risk involved, selling the house. Yeah, it's a big one. 
quitting everything, leaving your law practice, you know. Yeah, tell me some more about what ended up. Yeah, no. So I remember um, I interviewed with Kentucky. My wife was not happy about me going to Kentucky to interview. And I told her, honey, don't worry about it. Guys like me don't get jobs like that. And, and I was serious. I was like, there's no way I'm going to get this job. And then I remember it was a Tuesday. Amul Tapar calls me up and offers me the job. I tell my wife, she is not happy. And um, I call, I, I tell my wife and she is not happy. And um, uh, you could cut the the, air, the tension in the air with a butter, with a knife or whatever. And the next day, my wife says, I need to tell you something. So it's Wednesday. She says, I'm pregnant with our second child. And I was like, I was so afraid if I saw that child's face, I wouldn't take the risk. So on Thursday, I called up a multiple and accepted without my wife's um, okay. So to answer your question, I am married to the most amazing human being, literally am. She was not happy. Uh, I was in the doghouse for about a year after we moved. Um, but uh, to her credit and to my gift, right, is she uh, she stuck by me and she 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 understood we took and we took a pay cut, big one. We had to sell the house. Uh, just so you know, to 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 kind of add is um, um, the way it works is uh, the, the the department will tell you when you've cleared your background and mine took forever and then after you do that you have to report for duty and so they're like you have to report for duty so I had to report for duty in the house that had been sold so I left and I left a wife that was at that point five months six months pregnant a son who's about two and a half, um, a house to sell. She's working full time. And I head off to Kentucky to go chase my dream of becoming an AUSA. And uh, uh, anyway, three months later, I moved her up. Uh, and so I moved her, I moved my wife up when she was eight and a half months pregnant. Um, and so my, she gave birth in a town she hadn't been to nor seen until I moved her up into a house she hadn't seen until I moved her up. Um, and then she, and then my, my daughter was born in Kentucky. Uh, so it's, it was one that uh, uh, it was one that I'm, I'm thankful for ever since then, every move, of course, I've, I've consulted with her, but uh, that sounds prudent. Um, yeah. 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 But it's uh, I got lucky uh, in that she didn't leave me after that. So, yeah. Uh, Cause I don't think most people, it's, it's, it's a big thing to do. And a lot of people wouldn't make that sacrifice and move up. And, and and even to this day, I ask people to make that sacrifice and move to places like Laredo, McAllen, Brownsville, or Houston, uh, or Corpus Christi. Um, I think what helps is I made that move and I made that sacrifice. And I think if I, if I can do it, I think other people can maybe see themselves doing it as well. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'll be curious to return to that theme. Like, do you feel, I mean, so before, you know, we were talking about this thing that was very low risk. Now this thing that you took was very high risk. Do you feel yeah. like, you know, do you feel like in order to, to do big things in your career that you have to take big risks like that? Like, I mean, what's the takeaway from the fact that you took such a significant risk and it worked out? 
what what can we what can we learn from that and what can we generalize from that as far as making career decisions like you know what, what's your point of view on taking big risks i i think um sometimes ignorance is bliss and so i took that risk not knowing what it was like mm. to be a federal prosecutor especially one in kentucky not knowing what it's like to live in kentucky um and they took the risk on me right when they hired me to go move down there and so i i i do believe you may be ignorance is bliss but also being confident in your abilities i've always been confident that i could figure it out and get the job done and uh, also knowing I'm going to screw up along the way and figuring out how to uh, be tough on myself, but not too tough on myself so that I can keep moving forward. So a lot of people will mess up and maybe want to quit. I've never been that. And so I think that helps. Um, I've never been somebody who's just going to quit because it got too hard. Uh, and so knowing that about myself, I think help me to make the risk. But yeah, I mean, you've got to you don't have to make big risks to to be to be hugely rewarded. Uh, but for me, I know if I make the big risk and I put in the work uh that I know I can get there. I have this confidence that says I can get there. Um and so I think that's that's uh, definitely my style. Mm-hmm. Uh and uh but like I said, part of it was just ignorance is bliss. Yeah, I like that principle. I, I think that that sounds very really helpful for, I think a lot of people that end up as lawyers, and that's you know it's largely lawyers that are going to be listening to this. Of course, we're very cerebral, very analytical, and used yeah. to using you know doing our diligence. And I think the biggest risk as a group that we face is overthinking things. And and yeah, yeah, and so you got to go through gut. Yeah, you do. I mean, I'll tell you. So I've given offers to a couple of folks to be AUSAs. Um, and they'll overthink it and, and, you know, and they'll turn down the job, which I find to be incredibly fascinating because it's one thing, I mean, I get it, you know, maybe financially you can't make it work. That's one thing, but, you know, moving to a new city, like, I don't know. And they overanalyze it. I'm like, man, you just got to make that move. You just got to make it. It'll work out. Trust me. I'm picking you. That's a big part of the equation you made it to the final interview that's sure. huge right so i am oh. helping you de-risk this I, you have my support i'm helping you de-risk this yeah. yes exactly yeah. exactly so anyway uh but yeah the finance bit is interesting i mean i i, I don't imagine you necessarily know the full picture of these different people you know the different people who's ch- chosen to be in the office or not chosen the office their financial history you know you've mentioned growing up very poor do you feel yeah. like your ability like you know that exposure you had growing up you know had set pave the path for you to have the financial freedom where you're not, you know, you don't have golden handcuffs. You don't say I have to have X standard living based on Y income. Uh, I mean, what, what role do you feel like that's played in, 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 in your path and in paths you've seen of people who've gone to public service or like you say, chosen not to. Yeah. You know, I think when you grow up poor, it's a driver. You don't want to be poor again. I don't want to be poor. I don't want my children to be poor. Um, but I also understand that happiness doesn't come from uh, an $80,000 vehicle or a million dollar home. If you take those two aspects, 
and you you know you realize that happiness comes from family from uh you know the career you have the job you have uh, and then be able to have a job that pays you a good enough wage to where you can you know buy a house but not buy the million dollar house and buy a car but not buy an eighty thousand dollar or a hundred thousand dollar car and you're happy with that I think that's where poverty helps because you knew you were happy when your mom and dad you know were making less than 20 grand a year combined and paying for a 385 dollars a month apartment and so you know you'll be happy if you're making you know a low six-figure salary as opposed to a high six-figure salary or whatever so it's um uh yeah so i think that perspective helps ease the burden of not having as much as others but I'll, but i'll say this i have a kid going to college and i really feel the pain of like you know, man, 15 years in, in public service does kind of add up at times. Uh, however, again, I know if I can make it, my son can make it too, because I can make it. And so I know he'll make it uh, when he goes to college. So, yep. You, you talked about, you know, growing up, you, you were just one of a couple kids that were not white in your, your, yeah. in your high school. Yeah. Tell me about the path that led you to find uh, other south asians or, or or other people that were more like you that you resonated with like tell me about the path to find those people professionally or, or yeah. otherwise as well if you'd like but uh no no professionally i think it, so that's um so i didn't know uh many brown folks when i was growing up uh when i went to college ut's got a, a pretty significant south asian population so i knew a bunch i met a bunch more there but i really didn't become really close friends with a whole bunch of them no, I know that I do anything professionally with, but it was after law school. So law school, I was, I want to say, and I've looked at all the pictures and said, this is not a very scientific way, but I think I'm the first brown guy in the law review at U of H. Right, so U of H doesn't have a storied history of a bunch of South Asians graduating. When I graduated from U of H, I think there's maybe three or four of us that were South Asian. If not, that was it. Um, but for some reason, armed with that law degree, I felt this desire to want to meet other lawyers of South Asian origin. I don't know why, but maybe because I was in, maybe I'd finally come to my profession, right? So I'd finally come to my profession. Mm -hmm. This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Now let me find other brown folks. And so I found the South Asian Bar Association of Houston. And that's the first time I really met other brown lawyers. And, um, and to this day, those folks who started the organization are still people I talk to, are friends with. And then we started the South Asian Bar Association of North America in the early 2000s in the wake of 9-11. Um, and those folks are still my friends and people I care about to this day. And so that's, I think it was, once I knew what my career was, I looked for people who look like me in that career. Uh, and I see it every day now when I look at, uh, you know, today, I just, I just right before I got on the call with you, I just swore in, swore in a, uh, a South a South Asian uh, law student uh, for an intern position, and I could just sense like a level of comfort in in you know e even though I'm the U.S. attorney, uh, she just there's just a level of like I get her and she gets me because 
we had that shared background, that shared experience. Hers is probably a lot different from mine, but um, her uncle actually is one of the AUSAs in this office, and he's also, a, you know, another brown guy, but a really good AUSA. But there was just a, a level of comfort, I think, that I sensed when I walked when I first walked into somebody's living room who was hosting a South Asian Bar Association event in 1999. If that makes sense. Yeah, and what what did it do for you? I mean, so it's not oh. like you were, you know, it's not like you were in private practice. Like, great, I'll meet these South Asian lawyers, and some of them are going to be in house counsel, and I'll get work from them, or they'll refer me matters as as other you know lawyers that in private practice. Like, what I mean, like, what did you get out of it personally, professionally, to be associating with other South Asian lawyers? That's a great. So, but and and there's many ways. There's many reasons to join a bar organization like that, right? Um, and I think many people joined the South Asian Bar Association for that purpose. Let me get, you know, I'm doing a lot of cross-border work with India. This will help me get some good um, Indian clients to help grow my cross-border practice. And I think that's a valid reason to do it. I did it. Uh, so I joined the South Asian Bar. We formed the South Asian Bar Association of North America because I wanted to be part of something bigger and feel comfort uh, from those who look like me. We're going through the same issues as me. Um, there was just some, I wanted to share my experience with other people who had the same experience as me. There was something really important for me about that. And, and I think the reason that worked differently for me is um, I was looking for mentors. I was looking, and I wanted to be like, for example, there was a guy, there's a guy, his, his name is Nadine Bezar. Nadine Bezar um, is a well-known Philadelphia plaintiff's lawyer, one of the most successful. I know I wanted to be Nadim. He's older than me. Uh, I wanted to be Nadim, and he's you know he's good dresser and eloquent, great trial lawyer. I was like, I want to be Nadim. Uh, but one thing I didn't do is I didn't go to Nadim and say, Hey, help me develop clients. I just wanted to be like Nadim as far as a good trial lawyer, and I wanted to learn from him. Uh, and so I, I I approached him differently than probably other people did. I didn't, and so because of that, because of that, um, I had developed a, these relationships uh, that were, I think, for me, quite meaningful. Uh, and, and those relationships, I will tell you this, Coram, if it wasn't for those relationships, I wouldn't be in front of you right now. It took each and every one of them. It took Nadine Bezars. It took you know, uh, um, let's dive in. Tell me some more. Let's, let's yeah, get yeah. into that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so when I, when, when I did that, you know, I met, as you know, I met a multipar, but I also met a guy named Paul Grewal. Paul Grewal is now a legal counsel for Coinbase at the time. He was a big partner at a well-known firm in San Francisco. I want to be like Paul too. Um, and Paul and I became friends. In fact, I became his president elect when he was the president of South Asian Bar Association of North America. To this day, him and I are dear friends. Um, through my civil rights work and through my South Asian Bar Association work, I got to know a guy named Jim Ho. Jim Ho, uh, uh, at that point, was chief counsel to Senator John Corner. He was also quite active in the Asian American Bar Association of America. And him and I got to know each other on a truly good, friendly level. Jim Ho is now in the Fifth Circuit. Jim Ho, I can tell you, was a big part of me getting in this job. Um, and so you've got 
all these folks I met 20, 15, 10 years ago in the South Asian bar. Um, and I really, you know, and so those relationships. So when I, so two years ago, well, that was two and a half years ago, uh, in December of 2020, Biden becomes president. And, um, well, Biden's elected president. And I was like, I think I want to become the U.S. attorney. So first of all, Coram, if it wasn't for a multipar, which is it's so important, a multipar's presence, his existence, uh, and then, of course, him hiring me. If it wasn't for him, I don't think I would have given myself permission to even say this guy could put his picture up on that wall, first of all. Secondly, I, you know, I had friends on both sides of the political spectrum, which really, I think, was really helpful for me. Well, one thing about being a lawyer, I think I have, I think, prided myself on is even though I did a lot of civil rights and civil liberties work, and I'll give you a good, good example. Back in the day when I was doing a lot of ACLU work, I was debating the U.S. Attorney's Office, this office, and I was debating the head of the National Security Section in this office in open forums about national security policy. So the University of Houston, at Rice, at, you know, different places. Uh, his his name is Abe Martinez. Abe and I would debate each other. And um, I would always know what his argument was before he'd make it. Uh, and he would know mine. And, and although I did not agree with Abe, I respected him. And I think that was important for me. Uh, he, he probably didn't like me. I didn't like him much. Uh, but I respected what he did. The reason I say that is uh, when I became an AUSA, so, you know, my, my path was Eastern District of Kentucky, five years at Maine Justice at the counterterrorism section, and then I came back to Houston. When I came back to Houston to become an AUSA, because I was I wanted to come back home to Texas, and, you know, being an AUSA, you're the tip of the spear. At Maine Justice, it's fun, and I was doing terrorism work 24-7, but I wanted to be the tip of the spear again in the courtroom. And so when I applied for the job to become an AUSA in Houston, Abe Martinez had risen to become the number two man in the office, the first assistant. And Abe was in my interview. And to his credit, Abe hired me. Uh, of course, I was much different than I was many years before that when I was debating him in the private sector. I had, at that point, seven years of federal practice, five years of the counterterrorism section, um, and so he hired me to the national security section. But the best part about that story is Abe and I would eventually teach a course for seven years at the University of Houston until he retired um, on counterterrorism. We co-taught the course together. Um, and and I think even to this, and even when we taught it, I still learned from him. I may not always agree with him, but I was always learned from him. I say that to say, I think what helped me was I was curious and I was curious about what Abe did. I was curious about what Abe did and I was always respectful. Because of that, I, I built these really good relationships on both sides. Jim Ho, I was curious about what he did. Didn't always agree. We don't always agree uh, politically, but I was respectful for what he did. Uh, Paul Graywall, all those folks. So when I threw my hat in the name, my, my name in the hat to be the U.S. attorney, it took all, all of those folks giving me advice, calling people on my behalf, writing letters. It took the South Asian Bar Association in Houston, the South Asian Bar Association of North America, writing letters. 
uh, you know, people I met at the a Asian Bar Association and people I'd met before I went into uh, public service and after. So uh, it it took a village for me to, to get this job, but it took everybody I met in those 20 some odd years. So I think, you know, if, if anybody's listening to this, the one thing I would always say is be kind, be respectful, no matter who you meet, um, stay curious as to what they do. Because uh, if you do that, you never know it, but one day they'll become your biggest ally. And they may be the reason why you get what you, get get that next thing you need or want, and they'll be there for you. And so, yeah, so, uh, and, and to finally put a fine point on, on it, I'm all to par when, he, when I did my investiture. So at my investiture, Jim Ho spoke and gave a speech. Uh, so did a guy named Anil Mujumdar. Anil Mujumdar is an Alabama university. He's a professor at the University of Alabama, but Anil and I met when I was in the ACLU and he was the president of the ACLU of Alabama, of all places. Anil is half South Asian, half white. Anil is about as far as maybe conservative as Jim is, Anil is probably as far as, as liberal as he is. But they both spoke at my investiture and both were instrumental in me getting to this position. Every interview I had, I would get with Anil and a couple of other buddies I had um, and they would, you know, do the murder board and they would question me and we'd do mock interviews so that when I walked in, I was ready. Uh, and then, so you had Jim Ho, you had an email Jim Dart, my investiture. And then finally, um, Amul Tapar, uh, the, four, the first South Asian, swore me in, the fourth uh, South Asian uh, to become president, she appointed and Senate confirmed. So there was a nice, wonderful, full circle moment um, at my investiture with Amul swearing me in, who is now, as you know, on the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. And oftentimes, uh, when a Republican is president, on the short list of the Supreme Court, uh, so. Yeah, I, I, I'm not one, I, I think a trope is to complain about the next generation, this generation doesn't get this or that or whatever. Um, but something I am struck with is that for your peers, I mean, I, I'm a couple things. One is these people you all mentioned are incredibly successful, yeah. uh, have had extraordinary success, and uh, perhaps not coincidentally, everyone was all tied together. Everyone, you know, was, you know, despite, you know, uh, you know, these, these, these significant political differences. So, you know, something I, I, I wonder if, I don't have an answer for this, um, but I, I feel like maybe a perverse outcome of this community success uh, of South Asian lawyers, let's say, is that South Asian lawyers maybe feel like they don't need that community as much anymore. And so I I, I wonder, if, I, I think, you know, um, the South Asian Bar Association National Conference is coming up. I'll be there. I know a lot of people will be there and plenty of people won't be. And so I, I, I kind of wonder, you know, what would it take for people to, I think plenty of times people have had good fortune or come into a system with some good fortune, don't fully appreciate it. So I think, um, the hard work of of you know you and your peers has paid off because now you know you are the face of this of of uh, a very important part of our society and that is groundbreaking for other people to feel like hey like I could do that too yeah and so I wonder how you get people to not be complacent I'll also note that it can't be the case that everyone 
uh, you know, the people that you graduated law school with or, or, or were other lawyers in your firm, you probably were exceptional in how much you invested in those relationships. So this isn't even like a, a common uh, attitude period among any lawyers. Uh, but let's say among South Asian lawyers, I wonder how you can uh, instill in this coming generation that uh, has benefits that you didn't have uh, to double down and invest more in this community because there's more to be gained. You know, the, the fact there's more of us means there's even more upside in investing in relationships. Um, yeah, I'm curious to get your take on on, on how to how to uh, encourage that or facilitate that. You know, I think it so it has to come the desire to invest in the community and the desire to kind of invest in those relationships has to come organically and naturally. And I'll give you an example. In 2008. Um, I had just become an AUSA in Kentucky. And I was finishing my term as the president of the South Asian Bar Association of North America. And so come June 2008, I am done being the president. And let me tell you, I was done hanging out with brown people. And I was just done. Um, And so for a while, I just fell off the safe face of the earth and just did focused on my growing family, focused on being a federal prosecutor. Um, didn't go to Nasaba conferences that much. Um, uh, I went a few more times, but then really stopped going, um, you know, a few years ago. And, and so, and I think I needed that too. I needed to kind of be away from it a little bit. And so for those who don't show up or don't want to come, I get that. And I think it's, you know, I think a part of it is, and, and you've got to give yourself that space. But I'm glad I came back. Or I'm glad those uh, I called up after several years, I'm not kind of talking to them, were kind enough to pick up the phone and say, hey, man, I still got your back. I got you. I'm, I'm going to be there for you. And so, um, uh but I think that happened because when I was investing in the relationship, we really invested in each other. And uh, we really, you know, either you're part of something new, which is Saba, or, you know, you're building uh, new levels of discourse, whether it's with me and Jim Ho, or it's a new mentor-mentee relationship with me and Amul Tapar or Paul Graywall, you know. Um, you know, by the way, speaking of Graywall's, Graber Graywall, who I know you've interviewed you know, Gabriel Graywell was also part of this the, this fun, you know, early 2000s class of South Asian lawyers who were coming up. And so I do think it's, 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 and without commenting, it is interesting to see the, the Graywalls uh, both battling it out against each other, which I think tells you a lot about the South Asian community and how it's grown within um, the, the legal world that you've got this, you know, two big wigs going on a big case. And they're both South Asians happen to be named Graywell. Um, so I have, I am, put it this way, I am evidence and the result of invest of those relationships with South Asians um, and building those networks with Asian South Asians and 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 and, and whites and and all all, 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 all folks, I'm bringing them into the tent. Um, and so. Uh, it, you know, again, when somebody's ready for it, uh, it can really be helpful. Yeah, I like that. Uh, and I understand there's there's phases in people's lives and, and people yeah. come now this. So that's totally fair. 
Well, you know, I, we talked about, you know, what are what your goals were for this for this podcast. And one of the things that you said you really want to do was demystify the office. Yeah. And because uh, you said, hey, you know, I wasn't I didn't even meet a prosecutor some some years into practice. And I, I would like more people to understand what this office does. And so that's more attracts more people. And, and they also have an understanding about, you know, they're just more engaged with the office and understand what it does in its role in society. Um, and I thought maybe a good place to start that is with the mama rule. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. So the mama rule. So my mother is 80 years old. Uh, she lives on a fixed income. She is an immigrant. Uh, she knows poverty. She is the people we protect in the Southern District of Texas. So the Southern District of Texas is um, made up of 44,000 square miles, 43 counties, 9 million people. Um, and it has 400 miles of border with Mexico. It is, I think, the fourth largest um, district of all the U.S. attorney's offices. And just to kind of backtrack a little bit, the DOJ, the DOJ is um, the Department of Justice, which began in 1870 um, as a result of African-Americans who were being prejudiced by white supremacists, the Ku Klux Klan, uh, it was created to uh, go after those who were prejudicing African Americans in, in because of in the wake of Reconstruction. So this organization is has a long history um, with civil rights. It is some say the largest law firm in the world. Um, some say the oldest civil rights firm in the world. So that's the DOJ. The DOJ is made up of the criminal division, the civil division, which does criminal work, civil work, the national security division, where I worked for five years doing counterterrorism work, um, the solicitor general's office, the antitrust division. And then I said earlier, the tip of the spear, the tip of the spear, um, the people who are in the courtroom, those are really run by the U.S. attorney's offices. And there are 94 U.S. attorney's offices, 93 United States attorneys, um, and Houston is the fourth largest of those 94 U.S. attorney's offices. And so the work, uh, the stuff you see on TV, uh, the stuff you read about is mostly going to be done by assistant United States attorneys and U.S. attorney's offices. This office itself is 220 assistant U.S. attorneys, 407 employees. It is a big office. The mama rule says, first of all, I'm going to run this office according to the mama rule. And let's talk about the people we protect. They're people like my mother. And if you look along the border, right, you've got uh, human trafficking, human smuggling, drug trafficking, all those crimes along the border, usually driven by the cartel. They affect my mother, the migrants. My, my, my mother's neighborhood is falling apart in North Texas because of drug trafficking. Um, I, I can see it happening. Um, my mother's often the victim of the healthcare companies you'll find along the border and in Houston, healthcare fraud. The medical center is based here in Houston. Uh, big corporations, uh, when they commit fraud, they take money out of my mother's pocket. When you look at gun violence, right, the gun violence is affecting especially marginalized neighborhoods like my mother's and the one I grew up in. You know, the gang violence that you see in the in the different parts of Houston or along the border. Those are in marginalized communities, usually communities of color, a community of color like my mother. Um, and then, you know, when you look at public corruption, which I did also on top of um, national security, 
you know, those officials, especially in this, you know, you take a corrupt public official in a small county, the money they take is really small. It's just from a small pot. And you're taking money literally out of the out of the pocket of my people like my mother. And then um, you know, I'm trying to protect the nine million people when it comes to national security issues. So we have Iran, China, Russia. I would say those are the biggest national security threats we have, along with terrorism threats, traditional terrorism threats. But they're the big espionage, um, counterintelligence threats that face not only Houston, but um the the entire district. So, you know, you've got white collar fraud, you've got uh, IP thefts being stolen by 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 nation state actors, you've got the cartel, which I would say is one of the biggest national security risks we have, constantly barraging us with drugs, violence, human smuggling. Um, and so there's that part of the mama rule. The other part of the mama rule is I tell everybody in my office, uh, not only do we protect people like my mother, we're going to treat each other like we treat our mother. So that means treat everybody with respect, being civil. The unciv- the the incivility I saw when I was a young lawyer will not be tolerated in this office. Uh, you will treat your fellow AUSAs, your fellow uh, trial attorneys at Maine Justice, FBI agents, your agents around the country, police, defense counsel, all with that same respect. Uh, you know, when we walk into a courtroom, the uh, the judge holds us to a higher standard. There is this case, uh, which I didn't know about until I became a prosecutor, called Sutherland versus United, I mean, Berger versus United States. And it's, it's Justice Sutherland talks about the role of the prosecutor. And he says, uh, a federal prosecutor uh, may strike hard blows. In fact, it's, 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 it's expected to do so but he may not strike foul ones. We don't have the luxury of striking foul uh, balls. Uh, we have to always, you know, the, the duty of candor that we have to a court, I think, uh, for every lawyer that's there, but for us, it's paramount. It's what keeps the integrity of our system. So treat each other, treat everybody with the same respect as you would your mother, which means this Southern District of Texas, this DOJ, it's a family Uh, for me, and I hope it's for the people who work for me. So uh, uh, that's really, uh, I like the conciseness of that rule and how much it it impacts and, you know, how much guys behavior. Yeah. Um, I guess I I have a couple of questions. One is, you know, I think about, you were mentioning prosecutorial discretion, which I, I, you know, in my experience as a litigator, in my understanding of the office is such a powerful force. Yes. Uh, it's, It's just, it's a power that is, almost unlike any other in, in this society. Um, and so how do you balance the bottom-up, you know, discretion of the AOSAs that you entrust in your office to exercise their judgment with top-down goals that you have in, in, in directives? Like, how do you balance those two forces? Yeah, no, it's... Um, so one thing as prosecutors we all have to do is we follow the facts and the law. Right, we follow both of those, and it'll lead us to a point. And then the discretion really comes into play as to whether or not you choose to prosecute a particular case. So, the, my priorities are all the things I just laid out. Um, 
as United States attorney. They're also the priorities of Maine justice. So as an AUSA, one thing you understand is you carry out the priorities of the department and of the office. Now, those priorities, uh, like I said, should always be following the facts and the law uh, and then using your discretion appropriately to do justice. What that means is if a prosecutor um, doesn't want to follow the priorities of the office, for example, doesn't want to prosecute a particular crime, even though the facts are there, the law says you you should, there is, there is a thing called the principles of federal prosecution, which all AUSAs uh, go by. And in fact, uh, uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland was part of the first group that put that together when he was at Maine Justice in the 70s. But the principles of federal prosecution say, you know, you got to prosecute a case that has a significant federal interest. So assume all those are there. Um, if a prosecutor doesn't want to prosecute that case, then he's got either, he's got one choice, either he's got two choices, prosecute the case because that's the priorities of the office and everything dictates you should. And that's, that's what we do. Um, despite your own personal feelings about that particular kind of crime, or you quit, you can quit with your paycheck. And that's, and that's, I think we as prosecutors all know, if we're asked to do something we don't agree with, you know, we can, uh, as long as it's not unethical or illegal or immoral, then we can always, uh, you know, make our voice through our paycheck. And that's kind of the way it goes. Now, you know, I don't want to make it seem like I'm just awful authoritarian who says you must do as I say, because uh, we are we are dictated. So I I report to the deputy attorney general, who is the number two person in the in, in the department. Uh, that's Lisa Monaco, and of course she reports to Mary Collins. So I have somebody I report to. So at the same in the same vein, you know the priorities of this office should mirror the priorities of the department, uh, but also of course take into account the particular issues of this district. This district, for example, does a lot more immigration crime than any other district is going to do. Uh, this district has more prosecutions than any other district in the country because a lot of that is driven by the border. 80% of our cases are either border or border adjacent kind of issues from national security all the way down to an illegal alien re-entry. So it's, hopefully that answers the question. So you've got, Finite resources, yes, substantial, but it's finite resources. Yes, and the, the range of aspects of society your office touches on is enormous. Yeah, how do you allocate resources? How do you? These aren't apples to apples, you know. To Kayla, how to compare human trafficking to multi-state actor or, or, or nation-state actors? Uh, yeah. you know, appropriating IP. How do you allocate resources among these like totally non-fungible? Uh, problems in society or, or issues in society, how do you figure out, hey, this is a priority or, you know, this is what we need to shift attention for some period of time and resources? Like, how do you allocate that? That's always a constant issue for me as a U.S. attorney. So, you know, as, you know, one of the things I didn't have to worry about when I was in AUSA was any of that. Um, and so coming in as the U.S. attorney, this is something I've had to learn how to manage. How do I manage it? I manage it with a team of incredibly talented uh, executives and managers and supervisors. Uh, I'm not constantly moving bodies around, but I am constantly aware and cognizant of 
the issues and how they're changing. For example, I'll tell you a big thing that I have focused on that I I didn't know was a focus until I became the U.S. attorney, but I see as one is gun trafficking. And this is something that's probably more unique to the Southern District of Texas is trafficking of guns into Mexico. And because that fuels the work of the cartels and that fuels the deadly ways of the cartels, but also fuels the ability to do what they do, which is from smuggling to drug trafficking across the border into us. And so, you know, I have really taken that as a priority. So one of the things I'm making sure is when I hire new people, you know, how can I make sure I beef up that part of the portfolio? Another thing I'm looking at, for example, is, uh, you know, PPP fraud is huge right now. Would have been huge three years ago. Didn't exist. But now it's huge. And it takes up, sucks up so much of our resources, but we can't ignore those. Even those even those that are smaller dollar than the multi-billion dollar things that maybe an SDNY does, we've got to deal with them here. We've got a whole bunch of it. So I've got to allocate, I've got to figure out how can I move somebody who's ready for fraud. Uh, it doesn't take, you have to be, you can't be a new AUS, you can be more of a season and put them in there. So it's it's a great question. It's one I'm constantly struggling with. Also, you know, a lot of our cases, you know, I worked with law enforcement, with, with agents, um, and so they have limited resources as well. And so it's a it's a constant, like, uh, it's a Rubik's Cube of trying to figure out how do I take what they have, understanding their different limitations, their priorities, matching them up with mine so we can go after the bad guys. One thing we're doing right now is in Houston, we're going after gangs, gang violence in Houston. Uh, these are gangs that are in, you know, communities of color, mostly African-American communities and Latino communities. And so one thing we have done is teamed up with Maine Justice to have them surge resources of uh, AUSAs from other districts or trial attorneys to come in and help us build these cases, which are big cases, and really kind of lower the murder rate. In Houston right now, the murder rate is 500 a year. To give you some context, pre-COVID, it was 220. So we really have a murder problem. Um, and that doesn't even take into account all the people who survive because we have a, a, a vibrant medical center. So a lot of people get shot, survive. And so a lot of people get killed, get shot, but surviving. So we've got violence um, that I think is uh, much higher than it was before. And so I've got to figure out a way to kind of surge resources to kind of bring that down. So anyway, it's 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 a great question and it's a constant puzzle. Is there something causal about COVID and, and the pandemic that disrupted some social dynamics that you're, you're making? What's the connection you draw? Yeah, I don't know. I think there is. I think there has to be in that you've got less people either working and at home um, and that has a societal effect, which, you know, may have caused the increase, for example, in violent crime that we see in parts of Houston. It's, you know, it's, it's, yeah. So it's, uh, it's put it this way, the world is certainly different than it was in 2019. In fact, it just, it seems eons ago when I think of 2019. Yeah, I agree. So with the, with the, the, the range of crimes that you've prosecuted, you already had, you know, exposure to, a different set of crimes in the Eastern District of Kentucky. So you get a sense of the kinds of range of of issues that 
and office prosecutes and the impact has on society. And because of course you're in a different venue now. And like you say, there's, it's a different era. It's not apples to apples, but what is, what has really changed your perspective on what's, what's a more important issue than you ever realized, or, or what, what do you think people in our society should understand is an underrated issue that you've observed from your vantage point that other people haven't had the the ability to, to observe? Yeah. Uh, Two, uh, one is is one when I became actually when I became the U.S. attorney, I didn't fully appreciate, and I talked about it earlier. Are the cartels, the Mexican cartels in my district, the Mexican cartels um, for both the Southern District and the Western District of Texas, really, and, and to some extent the Eastern District of Texas, uh, they are, I believe, the one of the biggest national security threats we have um, in the U.S. Uh, They don't care about lives. They don't care. All they care about is money, profit. They will do anything and everything to make it happen. So human smuggling, big one. Uh, They are, you know, uh, we are seeing an increasing amount of uh, tractor trailers turning over and you see 50 40 people dead in the back of a tractor trailer. Uh, the cartel hires some young kid, gives them a few hundred bucks and says, drive. And when the police show up, you drive faster, which means that truck's probably going to turn over. Um, you see uh, the cartels, uh, what they do in Mexico is they've realized if they put fentanyl in um, drugs, it creates a, a, a much stronger addiction for the addict a quicker high, and fentanyl, um, you know, just a, a, enough on my fingertip can kill a human being. The problem is, so that's a problem, number one, but, um, you know, people will also, they also, when they're in the business of of exporting uh, normal drugs, steak, for example, you know, I don't know, uh, Adderall or whatever, whatever, you know, uh, oxys. They're making them in the same facilities as as they're making uh, the fentanyl lace products. The trouble is, the fentanyl is now going into um, you know pills of oxy or pills uh, of Adderall. And so what happens is now what we're seeing are children dying, fourteen year olds who are trying oxy for the first time die, um, and uh, the cartel does all of that. But then the other big part of it is on the, on the other spectrum is one thing I didn't focus on, but I really, I think is white collar fraud in Houston. I think is there's a lot of it. Um, and it's, and it's one, I think, you know, my office, whether it's the stealing of technologies, you know, we've got academic institutions, we've got medical facilities, you know, you're seeing ransomware attacks, on hospitals such that, you know, unless you give them money, the patient information's going to disappear or even worse, you know, somebody's going to die unless you give them the money. Uh, Hospitals lose power, for example. Um, And so, you know, one thing I'm trying to battle is how do I, first of all, get the hospital or the corporation to report it? They're scared to report it. Um, They're scared if they report it, it's going to get worse for them. Um, and then secondly, how do we have agents and AUSA smart enough? This is really hard stuff to figure out uh, to do this work. I mean, this is cutting edge 
you know, technologies? How do you put it together? And how do you go after not only the bad actors that are domestic, but international as well? So those are, I think, you know, things I think did not, definitely didn't exist in the Eastern District of Kentucky for me. Uh, but uh, I think, you know, really take up a lot of space when it comes to kind of understanding the complexities of trying to fix them. Yeah, that's remarkable. Um, it, it, I think, you know, when I, when I hear this, I mean, you're making me want to become an AUSA. It's just, it's just the kind of work that you do. And it, it just it is so fascinating and it, and it sounds very rewarding, you know, the chase uh, and break things down. Cause you know, when, when you get a, when you work at a big firm, you know, you're, you're given, you know, a matter to work on it's you're, there's meets and bounds to it. You know, you sure. maybe, maybe you'll find something, discover, you'll discover something fascinating or pull a thread that, that, that'll, that'll lead to something interesting that happens. And it's happened to me, but uh, you know, this, this, the, that uh, it's a much shorter thread. And so uh, I, I think that's fascinating to hear. Um, I also, I'm curious, you know, on a national level, because I, I imagine, you know, the 93 U.S. attorneys, have a dialogue and, and exchange information. Um, what's your view on trends nationally in in enforcement? So, what what are trends you're observing that you know uh, lawyers listening to this should be attuned into and in thinking about in in advising their clients or uh, you know protecting their clients from uh, heading down the wrong direction? What are the trends you're seeing nationally? Yeah, so you know, so I'll kind of give you some insight into how U.S. attorneys kind of like at the U.S. attorney level how we operate. Uh, so within the DOJ, there is uh, the Attorney General's Advisory Committee, which consists of about 12 U.S. attorneys, all uh, all presidentially appointed, Senate confirmed, because there are some U.S. attorneys who are, you know, uh, who, uh, for, for whatever reason, they're either acting U.S. attorneys or they're appointed by the court because uh, the Senate hasn't confirmed a U.S. attorney for that particular district. So. Usually all the U.S. attorneys on the AGAC, if I'm correct, they're usually presidentially appointed Senate. For maybe there's a couple that aren't, but I think. Um, so, uh, and then within those, in, within the AGAC, in which I'm not a part of, there were subcommittees. And so I serve on subcommittees. And that's where policy is made within DOJ. And that kind of sets the priorities of the department along with what the attorney general sets down as priorities through the DAG. So I serve on the white collar subcommittee. I serve on the national security subcommittee. I work on... Uh, I serve on the Border Immigration Subcommittee, which I uh, vice chair. And I'm also on the, there's one more committee. Oh, the Control Substances, which is drugs. So from my perspective, looking at that, I see I see that one of the biggest uh, trends I'm seeing is, first of all, uh, on the corporate fraud side. So, you know, one of the things that... Um, is you're seeing, hopefully, I want to say this, hopefully we can get more corporations to come and self-report as to kind of what they're seeing. And so we've, you know, we've instituted new new ways to kind of entice corporations to do that because what we're seeing is, uh, you know, corporations kind of want some sort of comfort level that says, if I come in and self-report, um, you know, will I get something for that? And so there's a policy called voluntary self-disclosure that's been put in place to, to help do that, both not only on the domestic side, but also on the FCPA side. So, you know, one thing I'm seeing a lot of growing trend in is an is in FCPA work. And, uh, uh, you know, you're seeing some case law coming out that's actually that's more favorable to defense than to the to the government on the FCPA side, making it 
a little more difficult for, for us to do our jobs. But, um, you know, the more international our community gets, the more FCPA work we get, and the more, you know, other countries don't care about um, uh, corrupt practices, the more we're kind of seeing that as well. So you've got that. On the national security front, I can tell you a big a big thing we're seeing is what we call disruptive technologies. Um, so take, for example, um, technologies to create weapons uh, for the Russians to attack Ukraine. That technology, oftentimes, if you were to, to get it, has American components in it. And so right now there is a target to go after those, to go after, to kind of go after those who are giving those parts to uh, nation state actors like the Russians. Uh, the Russians, what they will do is they will use shell companies to actually purchase the company that makes the product. And sometimes the company may not know that they're being owned by a Russian shell company so they can get that. So that's one thing we're really focusing on. In the same vein, uh, China is really good at um, stealing IP, whether it's through cyber methods, um, or whether it's or whether it's through recruiting scientists to come over into China, you know, and and give the IP. Uh, but they're really good at stealing the IP and then reverse engineering it. Uh, and so that's another big part of the disruptive technology. So. You know, everything from nanotechnology issues, uh, you know, issues that uh, technology that make rockets go up in the air, uh, technologies that power, uh, you know, generative AI issues, all, you know, you know, all that's going to be something we as a department are going to focus on. We're going to focus on making sure those technologies aren't getting into the wrong hands. Houston is a big part of that. Uh, Houston, again, with its huge medical complex huge research facilities, uh, huge uh, universities, um, and large corporations, oil and gas corporations that do a lot of work, especially with Russia. Um, we're going to be, I know my people are focused, uh, and so are the agencies on making sure we disrupt any of those crimes. Does that kind of give you an idea? Yeah, that's very helpful. So in these subcommittees, are you in any way an advocate? Are you advocating for, uh, I believe this should be bumped up in in in, in... I think it should be a higher priority or you specifically, or are, are you in that capacity? On I am. Okay. I am. I am. I am. You so, is, so you just describe all the things. Are you describing things that you've been advocating for or, or uh, you've observed? So uh, both. So it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's both what the department is advocated for and myself as well. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, um, and I think because of my national security background, mm-hmm. I'm able to speak a little bit more intelligently um, about, for example, disruptive technologies and nation state actors. And so because of that, mm-hmm. I can be kind of a better advocate than maybe uh, somebody who doesn't have my background. But uh, yeah, no, no. I'm So one of the things I'm doing as the U.S. attorney to demystify is really I'm trying to get out there in the community. This, what we're doing now, you know, when you called me up and asked me, you know, you had me at hello because... I think it's. I think what you do is provide an incredible service uh, to those. You know whether you know I am not as dynamic nor as smart a speaker as Kabir, but um, what I can do is at least give some insight into what uh, the U.S. attorney does. But no, so I'm I'm, I'm always out there, uh, either traveling or part of the community, just trying to share more about what we do. What are you optimistic about in the coming year? Let's say on a twelve month time horizon 
from either your office or you know the legal communities you're a part of, what are you optimistic about? Couple of things. So first of all, you know, one thing um, I have seen that's encouraging along the border is um, as it relates to. So there's a thing called Title Forty Two, which was this thing that was that went away. We'll just call it that. It went away in May, and when it went away, everybody was afraid uh, that there was going to be a surge of migrants coming across the border, trying to get in. There hasn't been. In fact, I've seen a downtick in the amount of migrants coming across the border. And I'm hopeful. What I'm optimistic about is that will continue. Why is that important? When migrants come across any part except a, except a legal port of entry, and if you go down to Laredo right now or McAllen, it's 118 degrees on the border. When they come across that border, and they're crossing ranch land, or they're trying to traverse the Rio Grande Valley, Rio Grande River. They are putting themselves and their families at danger. When they get into the back of a massive truck, right, and pay the cartel a few thousand bucks to get, and all their life savings to get across that border and putting their families at risk. The fact that I'm seeing less of that, I think, is a great thing, not only for our immigration system, which I think we all would agree, uh, you know, whether legislatively or whether through more bodies needs needs help, right? It's it's oh it's 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 a delicate fabric at times when it comes to the, how many people we've got in detention, how many people, you know, are um, here, you know, without status, how many people are being detained for years. Uh, the less people that come in um, through illegal means. Or you know, or without going to the port of entry, the safer I think our communities are in general, including those who are migrants. Uh, so that I am optimistic about. It doesn't mean I take my foot off the pedal when it comes to making sure I've got the resources on the ground to deal with those who especially come into the U.S., commit crimes, then kicked out, then try to come back again. Those we will we will always. Uh, seek to deport or go after the human smugglers. That's one thing I'm optimistic about. The second thing I, I think I'm optimistic about, hopefully, is, you know, on the uh, domestic terrorism front, uh, I am hopeful, but, although I don't know, I'm hopeful that hopefully the temperature when it comes to uh, uh, rhetoric gets tamped down such that we see less domestic terrorism, less domestic violence happening um, as a result of people's political views. I'm hopeful for that. Um, you know, I am a guy who went after terrorists internationally. I always think that's always going to be a huge threat uh, to our nation, um, along with those who want to take away our technologies or harm us uh, using spies um, and, and, and uh, illegal means. But I'm hopeful maybe uh, that the temperature will be tamped down. I don't know. I mean, 2024, will, I think, will say a lot. So we'll see. We'll see. Uh, maybe I'm being a little too Pollyannish about that. We'll find out. But either way, I'll always have the resources there. Um, you know, so, uh, um, but anyway, hopefully that gives you some ideas. 
Yeah. Um, and, and look, you 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 do have this very demanding job, and uh, you know these are weighty issues you're talking about that are that are on your mind. And so, uh, I I read a, a little profile of you in Swimmer magazine. Oh yeah, I, I got the title wrong maybe, but uh, uh, tell me about you know what 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 took you to swimming, what you love about it, and uh, what's your routine. Sure. So my uh, what took me to swimming is I was an in, I was a runner. I got injured. I was running about ninety miles a week. Um, you know, during marathons, too much, too much, right? On a forty-year-old at that time, that time forty-year-old body, forty-something-year-old body. So I finally, uh, you know, really got injured, messed up my knee, and so my kids were swimming, uh, age group swimming, uh, at the time. This is now eight years ago, and they were age group swimming, um, uh, with a with, with a club team, and I never took them to meets. I was like, ah, oh, I don't see the point. But I was like, and so then I was like, I need a, I need a sport. When you're, when you're running 90 miles a week, you're obsessive about something, right? There's something broken inside of you that, that needs a fix. And so I joined the master's team of my kids' um, uh, swimming, swim team, uh, uh, club team. And it was phenomenal. I, uh, uh, more, you know, first of all, I kept, I was able to keep my suits to the size they were. Um, I was able to kind of, you know, stay fit. Uh, I got fast, but but more importantly, I really just found a new community of friends. And you know, and when you're swimming, you're in lanes, and you 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 know, but you you swim with people. Hopefully, you're speed, but you see people are faster and slower. You alongside you, you get to know them. Uh, you know, and uh, so and I and I started taking my kids to swim meets. Next thing you know, they became really good age group swimmers themselves, and. It was all a blessing in disguise for me to get injured. And uh, so now my kids are both, uh, my dad, my son's going to run uh, track and cross country at the University of Texas, which I don't think he would have done had he not um, been a great athlete from swimming. Um, he certainly became a runner because I loved running. Um, and it was the one thing I could teach him how to do. And my daughter too is an incredibly gifted runner, but also a good swimmer and I myself even this morning you know I ran uh, so my routine is I ran this morning got up ran about five and a half miles went to the weight room and then hit the pool uh for about half an hour and then sometimes it's an hour and a half depending on how much time I have but it's uh, one thing in this position it's become increasingly more difficult but it is part of my routine is to uh is to swim or run at least every day that sounds like a hell of a, a hell of a, a workout routine. So I got to get on your level. Yeah. Uh, what well, as an activity, how does at a swimming compare to running? I mean, running can be individual, can be isolated, can be social. Uh, yeah. Swimming can be individual, maybe a little more social because necessarily you're all in this pool together. Yeah. Uh, and then just the action itself is, you know, there's there's something meditative to both of them, but they're a little bit different. So how do the two compare for you? Oh, I mean, for sure, running is a lot more fun. And mm. swimming in that is more to see, right? It's a lot more, I don't know if it's fun, maybe it's more engaging a little bit. Mm-hmm. When you're in the pool, it's, you know, it's, it's your life is in 25 meter increments and flip turns another 25 meters. And so uh, it's a little different. Um, and your rest is a lot shorter when you, when you uh, swim. So running is, so when I, when I ran this morning, you know, it was 82 degrees, 90% humidity it was awful. Um, but I had everything to keep me busy. I'll tell you, I'll tell you one of my great. So once one of the great things about working for the United States 
is I got to uh, go to Europe on the State Department's time when I was at the counterterrorism section for 10 days. We covered six countries in 10 days. I went to Germany, France, uh, Belgium, Sweden, uh, a couple other countries, um, Denmark. And uh, we, uh, um, uh, I ran a hundred miles in those 10 days. And so I got to see parts cool. of Europe I never would have seen, right? Mm -hmm. I got to see the Seine River, you know, at six o'clock in the morning as the sun's coming up over the Notre Dame. So I think uh, I think definitely running provides has provided me more stimulation. Okay. I, I haven't had any interest in running in a long time, but you've just bumped up my interest in running. Just, there you go. Just now. There you go. Well, I think we covered a lot and uh, just a super interesting story about your, your, your trajectory and, and what's led to you. What, what are the things, the impulses that have, have propelled you forward? So uh, really take, you know, really appreciate you taking the time to to share your story here. Thank you, Coram. And thank you so much for doing this and for having me on, man. It's been a, a, a pleasure uh, talking about all this stuff and getting to know you a little bit better. Thanks. Thanks, bud.